morning. We're continuing in our study of Revelation. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 1. Three weeks ago, Tom Peasland was here, and he preached on uh, <clears throat> Colossians 1 and the preeminence of Christ. Preeminence means um, having first place in dignity and honor. He, um, he showed us from Colossians 1 that um, Jesus has this first place in uh, glory because he created the universe. And uh, we worship the Lord for that uh, this morning as well. And um, not just having created the universe, but he has redeemed lost sinners. And so there are reasons for his, uh, his preeminence. He, um, he has first place in his church as well. We read in Colossians 1. And he should have preeminence, that first place in each believer's life. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And if you're ever uh, struggling to remember that verse, you can step right out here in the foyer and look up above the uh, old auditorium, and it's right there for us, Colossians 1.28, or 1.18, sorry. Why does the Lord Jesus have first place in honor? Simply because he's worthy, because the honor belongs to him. Because of, what he, because of who he is, we uh, emphasize that this morning, that we, uh, we praise the Lord, not just because of his benefits, because of who he is, and uh, then also because of what he's done in creation and redemption. Two Sundays ago, we embarked on our study of Revelation, and uh, Don stepped us through God's plan uh, for the ages by showing that God's dealings with mankind can be divided into different dispensations or administrations, different ways of, uh, of dealing with, um, with us. The current dispensation is the age of grace or the age of the church. It's, um, it's been uh, an age for almost 2,000 years. The um, dispensation to follow is uh, called the millennial reign of Christ. And it, um, it's preceded, the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus on the earth is preceded by the tribulation. We're going to have a lot to, uh, to say about the tribulation in our study of Revelation, and um, also by his second coming. At the, at the end of the um, tribulation and before his millennial reign, he comes again. He comes again. The book of Revelation deals with the tribulation, the return of Christ, Christ's millennial reign, the destruction of the earth, and the creation of new heaven and new earth. That was two weeks ago. Then uh, last week, Don gave us some keys to the, um, uh, to the book of Revelation, and um, 
he, he pointed out that uh, the key number one to understanding the book of Revelation is to realize that Jesus is the subject. He is the focus of the book of Revelation. That brings us to today. We're going to explore the first eight verses of chapter one. Um, and as we start the, the word revelation, you should be able to, uh, to remember what revelation is. It's the noun of the verb reveal. So revelation is a, an uncovering. It's a revealing of the future. In the Bible, it's the, it's the future that is um, revealed to us by God. As with other spiritual truths, we would not know of prophecy or of revelation if God did not tell us. Okay? It's not something that we naturally discern, not something that we see in nature, but uh, it's a, a, a revealed truth. Thankfully, God in his marvelous grace is willing to reveal the future to us. We're not left in doubt. In uh, Amos 3.7, the prophet says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to uh, his servants, the prophets. Well, John's going to introduce his, um, his revelation. How would you introduce something so profound and important as the end of the world, um, as the return of the Lord Jesus, as the creation of um, a new heaven and a new earth? Well, you would um, identify your source, okay? You'd say, uh, thus says the Lord. You would, um, you would show the authority that you, um, that you have to speak. Uh, you would announce the purpose, God's purpose, for making this revelation clear. You'd define your intended uh, readership. In other words, you'd, you'd address those... Uh, to whom you were, you were writing. You'd um, pray for your readers. You'd praise the Lord who gave you the revelation. John's going to do all these and more in, uh, in these first verses that we look at this morning. So let's, um, let's turn to Revelation 1 and read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We'll look at, um, at these verses in two sections. The first one is uh, John's introduction to his letter in verses 1 through 3, and then we'll look at John's greeting to the churches uh, he addressed in verses 4 through 8. Well, yeah, a revelation is, um, is an unfolding, it's an unveiling, but um, specifically, it's, um, it's about the Lord Jesus and about his, uh, those events that are surrounding his return. We can be uh, very, uh, very specific. Revelation is not new. Prophecy is not new. Um, nearly 30% of Scripture is prophecy. It's the foretelling of future events. Much of the Old Testament books of Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah are uh, almost pure prophecy. In fact, um, in Daniel, we read Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he told the king, he said, There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So we, we serve a God who reveals secrets, okay? He tells us what's in the future. If you came in this morning and had any question that Jesus is the focus, the subject, the object of this revelation, um, we're going to look at a slide, and uh, we're taking this passage, the first eight verses, and um, it's kind of busy, I know, but uh, that's the scripture portion, and uh, what I've done is I've highlighted references to the Lord Jesus, okay? So you could do a quick count here, um, but in these eight verses, we have 18 references to the Lord Jesus. What's the subject of uh, uh, Revelation 1, uh, 1 through 8? <laughs> it's Jesus, okay? Uh, we're going to get even busier here. I uh, apologize, but uh, next slide shows not uh, just the references to Jesus, but also those ascriptions, those titles that he wears. And um, you'll see uh, we're just, um, uh, we're filling the board here with, um, uh, with highlights of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, ruler over the kings of uh, the earth. Thank you, Nat. Note the progression in verse 1 of the message. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Okay, so there's God giving the revelation of Jesus. Then um, he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. That's the Lord Jesus. He's giving it to John. The angel... Um, signified it, he communica communicated it to this, uh, Jesus' servant, John. And then John bore witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ to his readers. There's a progression there. There's a, um, uh, a chain of, um, of testimony. God is very careful to transmit his message accurately. John is very careful to receive God's message and record it and to transmit it faithfully. 
he, um, he addresses the things that must shortly take place. We think of um, the word shortly as happening fast, now, soon, which is, yeah, that's a, that's a meaning of the word shortly, but um, really in view of the 2,000 years that have expired, have, have, um, expired, that word shortly we take as in its second definition that it's going to happen suddenly. The events of Revelation are going to happen suddenly. They're going to happen too quickly for people to uh, recoil from, to develop a planned response, to uh, set up programs of restoration and rebuilding. There's just not time in Revelation. Things happen uh, quicker and quicker in, in the book. Actually, in reality, in the future. Uh, also, John refers to all the things that he saw. John was a first uh, first-hand witness to these things. He's not communicating things that he heard, things that he saw, um, but I'm sorry, from others, but from the Lord himself. There is in verse 3 a blessing promised. There is the blessing to him who reads. Perhaps um, individual copies of this letter were sent to each church, but there weren't enough copies for everyone to have, okay? So somebody would have stood in the front of the assembly, uh, like I am, and he would have read the uh, Revelation 1 through 22. What a blessing we have in our age that um, we have as many translations and as many copies of the Bible that, uh, that we want. We could fill our personal library with Bibles. Do you think we are more responsible to the Lord because of the privilege that we have in, uh, um, in the translations that are available? Yes, I think so. So this one person would stand before the church and read the letter, and the Lord said he was blessed for it. He was um, spiritually prospered by it. Imagine sitting in that assembly for the, uh, and hearing the book of Revelation for the first time. What would be your response to, uh, to these truths? God said that um, he will bless those who hear the words of this prophecy. And uh, Jesus said in the Gospels, he said it several times, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If, you, if you're willing to hear what I have to say, I'm going to prosper you. Um, I want you to hear what I have. Then in um, the next two chapters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, seven times the Lord says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times you, um, you start to hear uh, Repetition, and uh, it's a clue that there's something important going on here. Let him who has um, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. But the Lord doesn't intend for us just to hear, but to keep the things that are written in the, um, in the book of this prophecy. 
Jesus will spiritually enrich those who hear and obey. Don't hear without following through, without doing what the Lord requires you to do. Well, what are the words of the prophecy that the Lord wants me to keep? I did a sampling of um, exhortations, the Lord Jesus' exhortations in uh, chapters 2 and 3, and uh, listen to what the Lord commands in, uh, in these chapters 2 and 3 as a sample of what he wants you to do in obeying the words of this prophecy, okay? Jesus said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He says, repent and do the first works. He says, do not fear. He says, hold fast what you have till I come. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. And then, uh, he who overcomes. He talks about overcoming. And that was what arrested me as I was going through uh, chapters 2 and 3. He has these uh, massive promises uh, to those who overcome. And I thought, "There's, uh, there's a command that the Lord wants us to keep, that he has given to his uh, churches and to his church here, overcome. Would you show us the next slide, Nat? Another busy slide, I apologize. But um, we, we look at the different churches on the left. These are the seven churches. And then I've referenced the... Um, the uh, uh, verse references, don't copy this down. I'll give you a copy if you want. But then uh, the conditions are, uh, just as we were saying, seven times the Lord talks about overcoming. To him who overcomes, be faithful until, until death. He who overcomes, uh, to him who overcomes. It's a command. It's a condition. And then the result of overcoming, the Lord gives a blessing He says, uh, I will give to eat from the tree of life. I will give you the crown of life. I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, I will give power over the nations and and so on. So um, there's a blessing. There's there's a command and there's a blessing. God wants us to to keep the, uh, the words of this prophecy. He wants us to obey and to overcome. Well, what does he want us to overcome? As I, as I read through these, uh, these verses, it's not real explicit as to what the Lord wants me to overcome. What are, what are the churches to overcome? So I refer back to uh, 1 John and uh, chapter 5, verse 4. John clues his readers into uh, how they are to overcome and what they are to overcome. And he writes, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Thanks, Nat. The world that we are to overcome is um, that society or system that we 
humans have built in order to make ourselves happy without God. It is a system that is antagonistic toward God. It is uh, the arts, it is science, it is religion, it's, um, uh, it's a system. It's a, a, a system that we have constructed, we sinners, before we knew Christ, to make us happy without God. And um, Bill McDonald, uh, I'm referring to often this morning, um, he writes in his commentary, he says, the world system is a monstrous scheme of temptation, always trying to draw us away from God and from what is eternal and seeking to occupy us with what is temporary and sensual. People of the world are completely taken up with the things of time and sense. However, the man of God... uh, really overcomes the world because by faith he is able to rise above the perishing things of this world and see things in their true eternal perspective. Okay, so Jesus tells his churches to overcome. What are we to overcome? We're to overcome the world. What is the world? It's all those things that are trying to drag us away from God, trying to distract us from what is real, trying to focus our attention on what is uh, physical, what is material, and uh, take us away from the spiritual. God says, I want you to overcome that. I want you to, to gain a victory over this, uh, this system. The Lord, um, the Lord Jesus rewards the believer who overcomes. We're going to see that in the, uh, in the weeks ahead as we look at the, the churches. Um, in that slide that we had up here, the Lord repeatedly said, I will. The Lord personally w- will bless you in overcoming. He's eager to bless John writes, um, the time is near. Again, we have, to, um, we have to define terms in, uh, in ways that, uh, that John intended them. What does he mean the time is near? Does that mean that, um, that it was uh, to happen immediately? Not as we measure time, the time is near, but instead on the prophetic clock. There's a clock ticking, and uh, on that clock, between the, um, the formation of the church at Pentecost back in uh, A.D. 33 and 2023, there's no prophetic event in the calendar, in the, on the clock, okay? So when the Lord says the time is near, he's looking from Pentecost, if you will, from the formation of the church to the rapture of the saints. And there's nothing in between. There's nothing there that's supposed to happen. The time is near. The time is near. There's nothing in the way of God rapturing his people. Okay? So that's why why John says that the time is near. What is the purpose of John's writing? If we could just summarize it in, um, in a couple of statements. 
The purpose of Revelation is to reveal events which take place immediately before and during and after the Lord Jesus' second coming. When the end of history is fully understood, his, the, um, the impact radically affects the present. On the one hand, believers are exhorted to holy living, and on the other hand, unbelievers are warned of judgment to come. That's the uh, purpose of John's revelation in a, in a couple of statements. And this is John's introduction to chapter 1, chapter 1 being an introduction to the book of Revelation. So um, let's move on to our second point, and that was John's greeting to the churches. Show us the slide, Nat. The seven churches in Asia Minor, the western part of Turkey today, um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and John is writing from the island of Patmos. So um, probably writing seven letters to uh, one to each church. And uh, why, why these? Why these seven churches? Well, uh, for several reasons, probably. First, they needed the message of encouragement and correction. These are real assemblies. These are real uh, assemblies with elders and deacons and, and other saints, and they've got problems, and they've got uh, things to commend them, uh, things that they're doing right, and the Lord wants to recognize those and to correct the problems. As we, um, as we look at each church, uh, we'll see them representing different eras, different uh, times of church history, and so there's a lot of instruction that we can gain from the Lord's message to these different churches uh, and what they represent in history. And finally, these, uh, these seven churches um, are a panorama of problems in the church, Christendom, the professing church today. So there is application that we uh, can make in Fremont, California, in Michigan, in, um, in, uh, around the world to uh, the problems that beset God's church. So we're going to go through those, in, uh, especially in chapters 2 and 3, and see what the message is that God has for us. Verse 4, John prays. Um, and he says um, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Well, grace is God's kindness to the ill-deserving sinner. Peace is the calm that enables the believer to endure sorrow, death, persecution. Uh, peace is a result of God's grace. It's that experience of God's grace. It's a common, uh, it's a common greeting for the apostles to different churches. And he, um, he says... Uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come. He's speaking of God the Father. How do we know that? Well, let's continue reading. Um, and from the seven spirits who before, are before his throne. The, um, the seven spirits 
there are probably the sevenfold spirit, Holy Spirit, um, shown in Isaiah 11 and verse 2. Uh, commentators weren't agreeing on that, but um, uh, that, uh, that's one uh, interpretation. Backing up just a, just a moment, um, that phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, speaks of God's timelessness. It speaks of his eternity. He's never changing. He's always existed. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So there's the Father. There's the Holy Spirit. We have the, um, uh, we have the Trinity here and uh, from Jesus Christ. And John gives some titles of, of our Lord Jesus, some ascriptions, some praise. He says that um, Jesus is the faithful witness. It caused me to think of um, Jesus under, on trial before Pilate. And um, Pilate <clears throat> asked the Lord, he said, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is committed to the truth in a way, in an intensity that we can barely imagine. He says, I am the truth. He is the firstborn from the dead. In contrast to those uh, who died and Jesus raised again, raised from the dead, they, they died, okay? Uh, they, Lazarus and uh, Jairus' daughter and all of them uh, were to, to die later. Jesus is the only one who has received his resurrection body. He's firstborn. All of us, when we receive our resurrection bodies, uh, will follow the first fruits, the Lord Jesus. He is first. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. The Lord will enjoy the uh, complete fulfillment of this uh, this uh, sovereignty, this, um, uh, this rule, in, uh, after Revelation 19, chapter 19, we read, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord will reign. He will, uh, his reign will be visible, it will be obvious, it will be um, uh, excellent, astounding, and there will be no backing down, there will be no, um, uh, no change to his rule. King of kings and Lord of lords. John gives praise to the Lord. He says at the end of verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. In uh, John 13, um, the Lord Jesus washed his, his disciples' feet. And uh, he uh, girded himself with a towel and he bent down and he washed uh, 12 disciples' feet. His, the feet were dirty. 
and uh, they'd step through the mire of the streets of Jerusalem, and, and um, uh, Jesus humbled himself to, to that. But it wasn't their feet uh, alone, but he washed their souls from sin, not with water and basin and towel, but by his own blood he washed them. Bill McDonald says in his commentary, honest self-evaluation forces us to confess that the cost was too high. The, um, the price that Jesus paid for washing sinners was too high. We do not deserve to be washed at such an exorbitant price. One aged saint rose in uh, our communion service and exclaimed, our sins, his own blood, How can these be in the same sentence? We sang at the beginning, Unto him who hath loved us and washed us from sin, unto him be the glory forever. Amen. What about you this morning? Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing, for his washing? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the lamb? Beyond washing us from our sin, the Lord Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. As priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. We offer the sacrifice of praise. We offer our persons, our possessions, our praise, our service. As royal priests, we proclaim the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a, what a calling we have as, um, as priests. As we meditate on such love, we conclude that Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory that we can give him. In in, um, verse 4, John referred to grace and peace from him. We we receive a cleansing from sin from him. We receive a priesthood and a kingdom from him. Isn't it about time that we give to him? John says yes at the end of verse 5. He says to him. And then in the second half of verse 6, to him be glory and dominion and power. Shall we offer nothing to Jesus in the way of praise and thanksgiving for what he's given us? Uh, We dare not be like the the nine of the ten lepers who were healed. They they ran uh, when Jesus healed them. Only one returned to give thanks. Our Sunday morning worship meeting is dedicated to giving to the Lord. It's that one period of time in the week that we're just giving to the Lord. We're not asking for anything. I mean, when when I'm in my quiet time, when I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord for stuff. And uh, um, it's a a great honor and a privilege to gather with the saints here and um, to give him what belongs to him, to give him his due, to offer praise, to exercise my priesthood. Ladies, 
You can exercise your priesthood right here in worshiping the Lord. Then in John, uh, then in um, verse seven, John addresses the prospect of Jesus coming again. He says, "Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him." He is coming with clouds, as he left, as he departed. In Acts chapter one, uh, we read, "While." They watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return with clouds. This return does not refer to the rapture because we know from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that the rapture occurs in the twinkling of an eye. The saints will be caught up to the Lord in the sky and the unbelieving world won't see it. John says uh, of this return that every eye will see him. because he's coming to reign on the earth. Even those who pierced him. We read of the um, Roman soldier who pierced the Lord's side with his spear in John 19. But um, this reference that John makes of um, those who, they who pierced him, uh, extends not just to those who were guilty of his death at the time of his crucifixion, but to those of every age who, uh, whose careless indifference is represented in piercing him. So we have, uh, we have that careless soldier uh, piercing the Lord's side uh, at the cross of Calvary, but we have people today in their indifference, in their carelessness, who are effectively piercing the Lord Jesus' side. And these are ones who will uh, mourn his coming. John is, um, is quoting from Zechariah 12.10. I'd like to read that to you, and um, I want to draw a distinction here. Um, Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for her firstborn. The... Um, the reference in Zechariah was uh, a mourning of repentance, okay? The people of Judah uh, would see the Lord and they would, um, uh, they'd repent in faith. Where these people, um, John describes, uh, they're mourning out of a, um, a sadness of, of getting caught, okay? I'm anticipating judgment, um, and um, they're wailing um, because, uh, because the Lord has returned. He's interrupting their, um, their pursuit of, uh, of worldly things. There is a worldly sorrow. It's a remorse for getting caught and punished. And there is a godly sorrow, 
Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The believer doesn't dread the Lord's return. He's actually anticipating. He's actually looking forward to the Lord's appearing. We read in Titus 2, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then John gives his double affirmation here um, at the end of verse 7. Even so, we could translate it, so it shall be, amen. And uh, then in verse 8, we have the Lord's personal testimony. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha, Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. They represent eternity, the uh, timelessness of the Lord, his present power and his future glory. He's, uh, he's the beginning and the end. You want to hear the beginning of truth, of justice, of dominion, of, and of glory? Let me tell you about Jesus. You want to hear the final chapter? You want to hear the final word about glory and truth and dominion and power? Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the beginning and the end. He, um, he claims as well that he is uh, he who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Well, uh, we had attributed that, uh, ascribed that to the Father in verse 4. And we see that the Lord Jesus takes equal honors to his Father. All should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And he is the Almighty, not part God and part man, but instead fully God and fully man, um, Almighty. Who is Jesus portrayed in these verses? Well, he's the grand subject of God's revelation. He is the central figure of history, of the future, and of all eternity. Jesus is the author of grace and peace. He's the faithful witness He's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is the source of our, own, of our royal priesthood. He's the one to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. He's the returning Lord who will judge heaven and earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those of earth, those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord Jesus, as we see you so powerfully um, recorded, 
your, your glory recorded here in these first verses. We, um, we want to look for you in the remainder of the book of Revelation. We want to hear your voice as you uh, charge your churches with, um, uh, with things they've done right and things they've done wrong. And um, we want our lives to change, to conform uh, presently to what's going to happen in the future, to warn our friends. And uh, for those who do not know you, that, that one person, Lord, who uh, has defied you and uh, who would mourn your coming again. We, we pray for that one to receive you as his or her Savior uh, today. We, um, we pray in, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.